VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, April the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. That's the fellow you'll be speaking with when you give us a call, get in the queue and on the air to discuss a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So we see the NHL regular season coming to an end. Playoffs begin on Friday. One of the favorites for the Cup, of course, will be the Colorado Avalanche leading the Western Conference. Uh, young Alex Nahook, a couple of assists last night. That's his 20th assist on the year, 33 points on a great campaign. Unfortunately, Dawson Mercer and his Devils won't be around for postseason action, but Way to go, Nook. A couple of assists. Always nice to have a multi-point game. And quick check-in with the Growlers who are up along in Quebec, playing against Trois-Rivières in the opening round. So they won two games here at the Mary Brown Center. Go to Trois-Rivières. Lose a tough one last night, 3-2. The Lyon scored with 22 seconds on the clock. And so the series now 2-1 in favor of the Growlers. Okay. So it was today in history, I don't know if you watch much baseball, but Nolan Ryan broke a 55-year-old Major League Baseball record by striking out his 3,509th batter of his career. He went on to accumulate 57 57 and 14 strikeouts, 800 more than the next closest guy on the list. That's Randy Johnson. That happened back in 1983. You know who else on that career list? Canadian Fergie Jenkins. He's got the 12th most strikeouts of all time with 3,192. And I don't know if you're watching the Jays, but they're a super fun team to watch. Man, he'd swear his party all day long in the dugout with those boys. Got some arms, got some bats. Won again last night, 6-5 over the Red Sox. They're 12-6 and to open the season in first place. One game ahead of the New York Yankees. We're coming to town now uh, early next week. Yeah, So they've got a 10-game homestand now with the Red Sox, Astros, and the Yankees. So I don't know if you're watching any baseball. Do you want to talk about baseball? And, you know, some people say it's just too long drawn a game's too boring for me every pitch is like a mini game i really enjoy baseball but even if you just want to get a feel for the flair of the jays one of the shows on sportsnet called J- uh, blue jays and 30 it's just a 30 minute wrap-up of the game the night before or the afternoon before really fun way to just get your baseball fix if you don't have the time or the patience to sit through nine innings which i do all right let's have a look at the uh, softball update the boys are on the road they are playing at the Pan Am Men's uh, Championship in Argentina. They're undefeated at 3-0. They play the undefeated Americans tonight at 6.30 hour time to see who moves on to the Worlds, which is coming up, I believe, in New Zealand later in the year. And, of course, we've got a bunch of guys on this particular team. Sean Cleary from Harbour, Maine. Brad Ezekiel from Harbour, Maine. Jason Hill from town. Shane Boland from the Ghouls. Colin Walsh from Petty Harbour. He was the top batter yesterday in the win, as a matter of fact. Assistant coach, Les Howie from CBS. John Hill from St. John. So go get him, boys. And, of course, we, we really, really do amazing stuff in the world of softball. You like softball or hardball? Okay. So I see, you know, there's a story where the headline is Mayor Danny Breen looking forward to summer events. And we had Sean Patton, the executive director of the Newfoundland Labrador Folk Art Society on the show yesterday, talking about the upcoming Folk Fest, the return to Bannerman Park, which is the rightful home of the Folk Festival for its 46th edition. Just wonder if you are looking forward to the summer events as much as many people seem to be. And, of course, it's the whole concept of, you know, the pent-up frustration and the need to get out and stretch your legs and to see a few shows or go to a few church bazaars or whatever the case may be so 
I want to talk about what's coming up in your community and whether there even be preparation for come home year. I'm still a little bit surprised just how down in the mouth some people are about come home year. You know, it's an industry issue that they really need a bumper season, the hospitality tourism industry. So we've had a couple of calls about what they're, what they're planning in one community or another. And if you want to talk about some summer events, let's go. I'll tell you who's coming home this year. The monarchy. <laughs> so... Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, are beginning their royal tour of Canada here in the city of St. John's on May the 17th. So the itinerary, you know, Confederation Building, Government House, Kitty Bitty, and whatever else we're going to be at. They move off then to Ottawa and then to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. So, look, they were last here in 2009. And... When you see how Prince William and Kate made out in their visit to the Caribbean, it was hostile to say the very least. They, for all intents and purposes, got run out of town. I'm sure there's going to be some protest here in this province, and I think it's an absolutely fair question to ask, how much is this going to cost us? You know, the royals are living a quite lavish lifestyle. Certainly they can afford everything from flying over, their accommodations, and security. So I get it. Some people think it's a complete waste of money. Understood. That said, there will be lots of folks who are fans and watchers of the monarchy, which are they're going to enjoy the visit if they get a chance to see the prince and the duchess. But just how much does it cost is an absolutely fair question. And I think if we extend the question beyond that to what is the legitimate role of the monarchy in modern-day Canada? You know, of course, there's a lot of things, whether it be uh, processes inside the House of Commons and in the legislature here, the association and attachment with the Canadian military. But what is the actual role? Like so so many countries, former colonies have cut ties formally with the monarchy. Uh, Jamaica just did in their most recent visit to the Caribbean. That would be William and Kate. Uh, The Bahamas cut them loose. So... I know there's a long, rich attachment, a historical connection with the country. Of course there is. But that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't be talking about what the formal relationship looks like today. But anyway, here come the royals. If you want to talk about the royals, (laughs) we can do it. And also a piece of good news regarding the upcoming uh, tourism season is we saw a bunch of people who operate, whether it be B&Bs or otherwise, said that they suffered a bunch of cancellations because the visitors could not secure a rental car. It's a massive issue right around the world for a bunch of obvious reasons. But the concept was we've got to have one of these ride-sharing apps, which are popular elsewhere, but they weren't available in this province. And so Canada's largest ride-share platform called Turo is launching in this province by May the 17th. This is very helpful, I would uh, think, that, you know, hopefully, even those who cancel their booking may indeed rebook now, knowing that there be the potential to use your car. So there's a couple of concerns that are quite obvious here. You know, one being insurance, but they have a relationship with a company called Economical Insurance. They also go on, it looks like there's a bunch of protections afforded to you if you might, might, pardon me, might want to rent out your car to a visitor. They do guest screenings. They offer 24-7 roadside assistance. They've got a bunch of different policies associated with uh, community safety. So the enhanced cleaning and disinfection guidelines for the host, worry-free, no charge cancellation policy. Apparently, for folks who have been using this uh, app in the past, for those who are renting out their cars, you can see revenue in and around 1100 bucks a month. That's nothing to sneeze at. So especially if you've got a car that's sitting idle a lot of the time, you might be interested in trying to pad the pocket a little bit and put your vehicle into the, the rideshare app Toro. So I think that's probably pretty good news for the industry. What do you think? All right, what is this? Oh, and, you know, we talk about the price of gas and stuff. The most recent guesses or forecasts on the price of fuel have not been very accurate. 
But Dan McTeague this morning said that, you know, maybe gas up around three cents, diesel up around nine cents. You look at the correlation between the price of a barrel of oil and the price of a litre of unleaded gasoline and or diesel. It's hard to understand why any increases in the offing, even though if you look straight at the gas, the 30-day, 90-day speculation market, nothing's really changed. So if today's the day to fuel her up, you can do it. Offering this one, again, for pieces of information and just how vigilant we all have to be. Like yesterday, we spoke with the province's privacy commissioner. His role is vastly different in dealing with the government and trying to ensure that we, as the general public, get a chance to see what government is up to. But on our own individual basis, you know, also the concept coming from cybersecurity experts is it's not a matter of if you ever get hacked, it's just when. And you just have to be so careful. You know, it looks like you're dealing with a reputable business or your bank or your credit card company or CRA or Service Canada and, yes, your town municipal council. So this is allegations of fraud being investigated by the RCMP in the town of Irishtown, Somerside. So there was an email thread that had, was recently intercepted, which indicated that there might be a potential fraud. So the, it looked like it came from the town, and they were asking you to pay an invoice, but it just got fouled up when there was all of a sudden tried to redirect the payment to another vendor, and so the red flags went up. There was also an email that went out offering a 5% discount on your property tax if you made your payment via e-transfer to the provided email address. And it turns out it wasn't from the town at all. So things like that are just so easy to fall for. It's not just the most vulnerable out there who have been the, the prey of all these scammers and criminals. So even something as fundamental as, wow, a 5% break in my property tax, that sounds about right. Edith, let's make the transfer. And then all, the next thing you know, the money's gone. It's gone to the bad guy. So it's just one more warning to be very careful as you try to deal with these things. And, of course, the advice is always quite clear. Don't click on any link or attachment in an unexpected text, text or email. And, you know, maybe when you get these things, it's probably the best idea to pick up the phone, to call the town or whatever, the company, to verify that what they sent you is legitimate and on the up and up. So do what you got to do to protect yourself. Okay. So we do know that throughout the pandemic and prior to, there was massive concerns across the country for access not only to health care, but to mental health services. Some of the areas that we've pointed people to, for instance, Wellness Together, a 24-7 service, that's been very helpful to folks, or so we're told. And also we've directed a lot of folks between the ages of 12 and 35 to the Jacob Potterson Memorial Foundation. They've been doing incredible work. But the flood of requests to be put on the wait list has caused the foundation to close or temporarily close the wait list. Really disheartening to say the least. It's a real shame that we've got to have organizations, terrific organizations, like the Jacob Patterson Memorial Foundation, to pick up the slack where government's unable to attend to our healthcare needs, including mental health. So you know, it goes on to talk about continuity of care. So you get in the churn, and the wait times for to see someone in the mental health professional world can be between weeks to a year and a half to longer. So this was really a big deal. So you got on the list, and this one story from this individual says, in about three weeks, she was contacted and then was able to see the therapist for 10 sessions. Applied for a second round, got to see the same therapist, so now for 20 sessions. And so we know the continuity of care is important whether or not you're talking about your own physical ailments and, yes, your mental health concerns. Because it takes, for some, a significant amount of time to build that level of comfort and trust 
with the therapist. So you might be five sessions in of your 10 before you really feel like opening up and consequently getting the help and the therapy and the treatment that you need. So that's a real shame that the Jacob Potterson Memorial Foundation has had to temporarily close the wait list, but it just goes to show you just how big a deal it is and just how massive a concern it is. Access to long-term mental health is nowhere near where it needs to be. We've got lots of powerful advocates out in the general public doing everything they can to shine a bright light on it, but hopefully they're able to deal with the number of clients that they're currently seeing and counseling at the foundation and they can open up more services, psychological services, for those between the ages of 12 and 35. If you ever want to try to tell your story, personal, and or talk about opportunities out there for alternatives for counseling, we have some ideas here that we're happy to share. And if you have some where you think it could be helpful based on your own personal experience, please do indeed consider giving us a call here this morning or any day. Okay, let's keep inside the envelope of healthcare. Why not? One second, sip of coffee. Okay. So Pfizer's antiviral oral treatment, Paxlovid. It looked like a really great thing because we've talked a lot about prevention as opposed to a lot about whether it be vitamins and exercise and how you can deal with your own immune system and some of the therapeutics that can help if indeed you are symptomatic and potentially at high risk if you contract the COVID, vi COVID virus. Pardon me. So the story was about Rod Dion, 100-year-old Second World War veteran. And his daughter, Jen, took up the cause and very, well, I don't know what the right word is, was very vocal about her disappointment that even upon recommendation from Mr. Dion's nurse practitioner to get Paxlovid, initially was denied. Now he will indeed get the treatment. So there's only been about 210 courses of Paxlovid that have been prescribed so far in this province. The Department of Health says in a statement that there's 3,100 treatment courses have been sent to the province. So the restrictions or the eligibility requirements are really quite strict around here. And here's what they are. This is the current provincial guidelines. Paxlovid is only available to people who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated and are not in hospital, along with anyone who tests positive and shows symptoms within five days of requesting the drug. Those over the age of 80 can only access the drug if their vaccinations aren't up to date, including a booster dose. They say it's based on national guidelines. Other provinces do it different. In Ontario, for instance, 70 plus, regardless of your vaccination status, if deemed, uh, deemed the proper course by a nurse practitioner or doctor, then you can get it. So I wonder why it's the way it is here. And then it also somewhat curious that the health authority says that based on examination of individual cases, like Mr. Dion's, that it was now deemed he was able to get this course of treatment. It kind of feels like we're going to create an awful lot of work. If it's got to be assessed by your nurse practitioner or doctor and then by the health authority itself to deem whether or not you are indeed eligible and will get Paxlovid, it seems like we're going through an awful lot of hoops here. So even if it was 80 plus regardless of vaccination status or like Ontario, 70 plus regardless of va vaccination status. I'll also put this in there, not an effort to be saucy, just an observation. If you didn't want to be vaccinated, so be it. It's up to you. Nothing anyone can say or do about it anymore. But the company that you didn't trust at all, Pfizer, you wouldn't take their vaccine, but you'll take their treatment. I just find that to be a little bit of a juxtaposition, a juxtaposition that's hard to really understand. We also had a call yesterday, a lady who was once living in Ontario, now living in this province, talking about the absence of regular annual physical exams. 
And she says that uh, she was able to get one annually in the province of Ontario. And I guess she's been here quite a long time, so things have kind of changed on that front. Interestingly, an article that was sent to me by Ted Blades yesterday. Back in 1976, the federal government decided to have a look at this practice. They created the Canadian Task Force on the Periodic Health Examination to see whether or not routine annual checkups were good or bad. They determined there was no need. They say that it might even do more harm than good. All that might prove is that you'll do and have more tests performed on you, but didn't decrease your risk by any appreciable amount to die from severe diseases. So kind of a curious thing that's as old as 76 but apparently the province of Ontario stopped the practice back in 2013 and they do now what they call personalized health reviews must be nice though because to have a personalized health review means you have to have a relationship and a continuous relationship with your doctor so that you're not always starting from scratch even though the collaborative care clinic is going to work if we can staff them appropriately and not simply shuffle healthcare professionals around but that was an interesting article that I read on uh, behalf of Mr. Blades, thank you for sending it. And please do, if you ever see anything out there floating around that you think can help us uh, provoke conversation or fill in the gaps or add additional information, please do send it along. You're quite helpful on that front. And all right, so looks like another convoy headed towards Ottawa, this time, this time the two-wheel variety, a motorcycle convoy. And they're saying it's about veterans and mandates, even though their guest speaker is, I don't know what he has to do with veterans, Mr. Chris Skye, who might be notorious in your circles. But anyway, they're heading towards Ottawa, and they say that they don't have access to bring their bikes on Parliament Hill and the National War Memorial. There's going to be a quote-unquote free-for-all creating a safety issue. The RCMP, the OPP, and other police services, other city police services will be there to try to deal with it. So I do think it's an absolute fair time to talk about mandates. Absolutely. Why not? And you've heard me say it before. Vaccinated folks are vaccinated. Those who aren't will not be. And so there's no more coercion or arm twisting or encouragement to get vaccines. That, that story is, that tale is told. So we can indeed talk about it. But I'm not so sure the potential for a safety issue and a free-for-all if they're denied access is something that is going to be any good for anybody. But on that front, the federal government announced at the 11th hour that they will indeed have an inquiry into the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history. You know, some people via email have told me, well, the fix is in. The government only called it because the outcome was predetermined. They called it because it was required by legislation, but anyway... They're talking about the evolution of the protest and the actions of the protesters, but no focus on the government's decision and the processes that led to invoking the Emergencies Act. That has got to be a keen focus of this. How could it not be? We're talking about why it was invoked. Yes, we can talk about what happened and what they may have seen on the ground, uh, but we need access to documents to lead us to understand why the government did what they did. It's an extraordinary measure. Whether or not it was required is a matter of debate, but once we get a look at some of the documents that led to the information given to the PMO before the Prime Minister invoked the Act, that's got to be part of it. How can it not be? All right, how are we doing on the phone there, David? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Make some suggestions, criticizes, complaints, applause, whatever you got. Her email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. It was today in 1957 that Little Richard, love Little Richard, took over number one on the R&B chart with this classic, Lucille. Don't go away. 
and welcome back to the show. Let's begin here, line number two. Jackie, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, I, I thought I was line number one, sorry. Oh, yeah, you're um, on two, and you're on the air. Go right ahead. Earlier there was something said about not feeding the birds, the ducks. And I was curious what that was about. Uh, where did you hear this? On our newscast? Yes, prior to your show starting. It was something from Environmental Canada. Okay, so I was doing my own thing when Jerry Lynn was speaking to some of these community-related matters, but there's long been concern, whether it be uh, related to the avian flu at this moment in time, even though it's quite rare, where someone, a human can contract avian flu from a goose or a duck or any other bird. So it's about that, but I also think that, you know, you see this far too often, is uh, someone will go down around, say, Kitty Bitty, for instance, with the bag of bit stale hot dog buns or something and start feeding that to the ducks, which, of course, is really unhealthy for them. They'll take it, no problem. They'll love it. But it's not what we should be feeding ducks and or the geese if you like to see the birds in your backyard. You know what's interesting about that, too, is like a bird feeder. People put up bird feeders in their backyard to attract birds so they can just be uh, enjoy viewing them. When, in fact, birds are attracted to insects more than they are to seeds. So just the natural habitat of your backyard and the prevalence of insects will be far more uh, attractive and incentivizing for birds to visit versus the bird feeder, which people think is the reason why the birds are there. The birds come there for the insects much more than they do for a seed. But I think the concern Jerry Lynn was speaking about was probably related to avian flu. And uh, maybe if she, can hear, if she can hear this program, she can fill me in. Okay, because, I mean... I don't want to be doing anything wrong, but I've been seeing ducks since we bought this house. They actually needed my hand now. And the baby, they had their babies, and they bring their babies back, and I just love it. And I don't see, I, I actually go to St. John's if I don't crack corn. And you get the Cheerios in the morning, like that. I don't, I want to make sure there's no danger to me or my grandkids. Because I'm teaching them to feed the ducks. Well. Every time you have an interaction like that with a duck or a bird that you've fed and it came to your hand, first things first, you have to be very careful to wash your hands or sanitize right away when you have that type of interaction, regardless if we're talking about avian flu or otherwise, because birds carry some potential nasty problems for humans if we all of a sudden have it on our hands and then it's uh, on our face or in our mouth. But, I mean, people duck hunt and they eat birds. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I, I love it. So I was confused about that. I'm not so sure what to say about the hunting aspect, but I mean, even for consumption, it's proven to be very little risk to human beings when we talk about that particular flu. So I think that's the vague reference probably being made to the potential quote unquote dangers of feeding the ducks. I think we're probably better focused on, you know, once you wash your hands, it's what we're feeding the ducks is probably the bigger conversation. Yeah, see, like I said, I buy cracked corn for them. Sure, that sounds about right. And um, I'd rather feed ducks and eat them. <laughs> Fair enough. But I just wondered what that was about. If there's something else going around with the bird. If I'm wrong, and I'll send Jerry Lynn a text message here now to see if there's anything else that I should add to it. You stay tuned to the show, and if there's any more to her report, I'll speak to it here on the show for you. How's that, Jackie? Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Dave, did you hear it? Was it about anything beyond avian flu? I didn't. I had my head down. Oh, injured birds? Okay, I'll, I'll get a, an update from Jerry Lynn to speak to because I have to say I had my head down getting prepared 
for this program. Will I try to stay on track with the break times today, Dave, for once in a lifetime? All right, so appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Justin's there to talk about protected lands in Central. I don't know if that's in reference to a story we, uh, we spoke about last week about access to timber. And the swath of land, I think it was called Charlie's Nest or something, where it was a contentious place. It was Abitibi, pardon me, not Abitibi, it was Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper had some access rights, but some smaller operations and individuals, they are not too pleased with it. And Tracy's also there. She wants to talk about road rage, and that is all too common. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. So apparently what Charlie Mackey had read earlier on the VOCM Morning Show was a public service announcement about warning people about handling birds whether that be pigeons and ducks. So I suppose that's not only about the potential for transfer of avian flu, but it's also about potential injury for those uh, animals and wasn't about feeding them at all. So you should be okay, Jackie. Let's go to line number three. Tracy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, good morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, my mom called in about a week or so ago talking about a goal my son had scored at a hockey game, and you were really, really kind to her. So I just want to... Um, uh, thank you for that. Uh, but the reason I'm calling today is, I guess, to talk about overall road rage. Um, I had a co-worker of mine here in St. John's who was traveling to the West Coast, and I had her drop off an Easter um, present or something to my mom, who lives in a lower uh, town site in Cornerbrook. And Cornerbrook is, I guess, the original roundabout city in, in Newfoundland because you know, there's so many one-way roads there, and it was pretty disappointing when my co-worker got back and told me that, you know, she went the wrong way, and here were people, like, uh, sticking up their finger at her and, like, gesturing to her because she went up the wrong road. Yeah, people get... Uh, I'm convinced that people's own personalities change, for some people, when they get behind the wheel. You know, they probably wouldn't have behaved like that had someone walked uh, the wrong way in a grocery store aisle or whatever whatever constitutes the wrong way these days. But I just don't know why everyone is just so wound up or so many people are so wound up behind the wheel. You know, and we all see it every single day. People will be in an absolute hurry to go nowhere, right? I mean, I'll see you at the next red light, dodging in and out of lanes, thinking that you're getting somewhere, somewhere, somewhere expedient when, of course, we're all getting there around the same time, just with the nature of the road network around here. And there's simply no need to be throwing around the double barrel fingers or rolling down your window to curse out a fellow motorist or a flag person or what have you. I just don't know what happens when people buckle up or even if they buckle up, period. Like, what people got to realize, like, you know your own area. Like, uh, you know, I live here in Southlands in St. John, so I know one time I had to, and I'm from the West Coast, so I'm, I wasn't overly familiar when I moved out here. Yeah. So I know one time I, I, you know, I was down around Forest Road and I blew past you know, probably going 30 kilometers now, we're trying to find the road to the Miller Center. And, you know, this fellow female motorist, you know, stuck up her finger at me, so I flipped her the bird back like you would, and then she followed me up around the parking lot up at Miller Center. And finally I got out of my car and said, really? Like, really? But the thing about it is, like, we got come home year coming. And it, it would be a tragedy, not a tragedy, it's a bit extreme, but 
it just left a really bad taste in my co-worker's mouth that when, when she dropped off something to my mother in Cornerbrook, that, you know, she went up the wrong way, and that's the response she got. Like, Cornerbrook is famous. You go in uh, Park Street, West Street, is all one way. Broadway is all one way. You go up Central Street, and you circle back. Like, people in Cornerbrook got to understand that not every area got one-way streets. I don't know if it could be better marked or something. This is just an example, but just overall kindness for people who are going to be coming to our province, and just because their license plate might have Newfoundland on it, that doesn't mean that they're familiar with the area that they're in. A hundred percent. I mean, some tangly areas in the city of St. John's would apply, too. Like, no problem to see someone messing it up trying to go navigate to Rollins Cross, for instance. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's probably worth all our while just take a deep breath and get in the vehicle and just get where you're going you know get there safely and get through kind of just doing what you can to be a respectful member of the motoring public versus the how quick my uh, the amount of time i hear the horns blaring and people glaring is just unbelievable i don't know where people have the patience for it and you know and that level of of anger is debilitating it's the most exhausting of all emotions i try to curb my potential bursts of anger because I just find it too exhausting, especially doing the program. Yeah, and I'll just make this short. Like, even, like, I found I was up around Paradise the other day. I mean, there wasn't a lick of a paint back on the road to tell you which lane you were in. Sure. So so I'm just asking people out there to, you know, try to be kinder to people, for municipalities to have a good look, and maybe they should put up better signage or, or something. But, like, people really got to check themselves because, you know, there's so much shit going on in this world, and really someone's going the wrong way, and you're losing your mind about it, like, seriously. So I just hope that municipalities such as Cornerbrook and other places that, that might have some uh, challenging uh, road directions to, to really look at how they're going to do that because hopefully we will have a lot of visitors this year. You would imagine that 99% of the time that someone does something like go the wrong way on, the, on a road is they had no idea they were going the wrong way until it was yeah. too late and they're not trying to cause an accident. They're probably trying their very best to avoid one and simply made a mistake. So I know it can be uh, troubling or potentially scary if someone's coming at you the wrong way on a one-way road, but that doesn't mean that they were trying to hurt you or to shag up traffic. They just simply took a wrong turn and didn't know that they were about to enter our one-way street the wrong way. So whatever it is, you know, and the, the roundabouts. <laughs> I, I don't go to Costco. Um, my wife does that tour. I do the a lot of the other shopping groceries in particular. But every time I have been out there with her, it is amazing just how aggressive people are and what can be confusing for many is just navigating that triple roundabout setup yeah. so again nobody's everyone just wants to get through their unscathed no one's trying to ruin your day so anyway i think it's a, a fair message tracy and i appreciate your time this morning all right thanks have a great day you bye. too take good care bye-bye where am i going here now dave four okay let's go to line number four and say good morning to the chair of happy city st john's that's debbie wiseman good morning debbie you're on the air Good morning, Daddy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So you just recently had your Happy St. John's uh, Neighborhood Summit. I think it's a biannual summit. What went on? What was on the agenda? Uh, it's actually coming up this weekend. Oh, it's coming up this weekend. Excellent. So what is on the agenda? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, like you said, it's our biannual summit. Um, it takes us well over a year to plan for it. Um, the theme this year is connectivity. And so um, it's on Saturday, April 30th, from 9.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. at the Alt Hotel on Water Street. And that's a fully accessible location. And it's on the bus routes and stuff. 
And so uh, this year we have four sessions, and uh, I'm going to tell you about a little bit about each session. Uh, I won't take up too much of your time. But before we but, get into um, breaking down the sessions, sure. what specifically do we mean by connectivity? Because for some, it might be their internet connectivity. Some, it might be for understanding who your neighbors are and connections there, and or connections with other services in the city. So what exactly are we talking about? So when we talk about connectivity at, at our session, we're talking about um, how people get around the city and how they interact with their neighbors. Getting around the city and the topic of public public transit is a big yeah. one. There's been lots of reports commissioned about how it can be approved and how to increase ridership, but I don't think we're getting there. No, <laughs> unfortunately, but, um, you know, we're trying to help in whatever way we can. We're going to be presenting some of these, um, the results of these sessions to the city and to the Transportation Commission. You talk about making neighborhoods happier. Some neighborhoods have got it figured out. Georgetown comes to mind. So, you know, the popular thought for a long time has been the best neighbor is a 10-foot high fence. Convince people that's not the right place because a happy neighborhood, much more content, very likely looking out for each other's best interests, bit of community surveillance, a bit of help when required. So convince people that a tall fence isn't the best neighbor. A happy neighbor is the best neighbor. Yeah, um, so I, I grew up with our neighbors were always, you know, everybody knew each other's business kind of thing, but it was good. It was, you know, you felt like you were part of a community, not just a neighborhood. Um, you were isolated in your in your home. Um, I think, you know, in this, in this day and age, there is a lot of isolation with social media. You think you're, you know, that's enough um, communication with people, but it's really not. It doesn't replace the, you know, the actually physically talking to somebody. Um, I lived for a few years in paradise and I didn't know my next door neighbors and I hated it. It just wasn't, it wasn't good. And I live downtown St. John's now and I know everybody on my street. I know them all by first name at least. And I know their pets names and it's fantastic. Um, I think if you know your neighbors, you feel like more of a connection to your neighborhood. I agree. And especially young family neighborhoods where, you know, it'd be nice to know that your child can knock on someone's door if they nick their knee or they need some help. But just keep an eye out to make sure that everything's running smoothly and according to plan and everyone's having fun and no one's in, uh, no, no one's in any danger or whatever the case may be, not to plant that fear. But it does make a big difference. I know the kids in my neighborhood. I take great pleasure in listening to them playing in the park and out on the rollerblades in the street. And everybody knows everybody by name for the most part, which I find. Yeah. It makes it much more comfortable. Okay, let's get into breaking down the sessions quickly. Debbie, let's go. Sure, yep. So our first session is called How We Move, Planning for Accessible Active Travel. And that's going to be a panel of people who are going to talk about um, the experiences they have. They have diverse needs and how they get around the city without a car. And so we're going to um, raise awareness of the barriers to accessibility and talk about what a city with a truly accessible transit system would look like. Um, the second session is called On the Bus, Reflections on Public Transit, and that's my session. Um, I did a survey a couple of months ago, and I'm going to pre be presenting the results of the survey. Um, I surveyed people, if you use the bus, what you like, what you don't like, and if you don't use the bus, why not, and what could get you to start using the bus? Um, those are the morning sessions, and then in the afternoon, we have um, housing experiences of newcomers and international students, and that's a, a master student from mine uh, that's on our board. Um, she's going to talk about the difficulties faced by newcomers and international students um, to access safe, affordable, and accessible housing and how we can address those challenges. And then you spoke about Georgetown, one of the members of the Georgetown Neighborhood Association, and one of um, some of
somebody that works with us. They're, that's their session called Getting Things Done, Community Groups in the City. And so they're going to talk about how you can, you know, your neighbors can work together and work with the government to make meaningful change. And then um, they're going to discuss research and experience to tell you how to advocate for yourself. And then they're going to have a fun practice, some fun practice scenarios that people can go through. The Metro bus, you know, it's the same old thing, isn't it? Is the frequency of routes, the express routes, the adequacy of the bus shelters, all the yeah. same things that we know about and we've read about in the various reports, and hopefully there's some attention given to it. Okay, if I'm interested in being involved with the summit, what do I have to do? So you can go to happycity.ca, and we have the registration links there. Um, we have tickets that start, they start at $5 and they go up to $20, but if... Um, if the cost is a factor, you can just email us and we'll give you a free ticket. Sounds good. I mean, donations go a long way to keeping the organization going. You know, the, the suggested amount is $20, but if you can't afford it, accommodations will be made, and rightfully so. I appreciate Absolutely. the time. Good luck with the summit, Debbie. We'll look forward to a, uh, a recount sometime next week. Great. Thank you. You're welcome, Debbie. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Debbie Wiseman, the chair of Happy City St. John's. If it was only as happy as the title. Hey, boy. All right, Justin, we appreciate your patience. We're going to get to him right after the break to talk about protected lands in Central. Other than that, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's go. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go back to line number one. Justin, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing good, sir. How are you? Not too bad, my friend. It's, uh, it's not snowing anyway, and there's a few robins on the grass, so uh, we'll take it, I guess. <laughs> we're, we're almost there. Spring is here on the calendar, but not quite in the weather. Yes, that's right, until until May 24th. Now, we get that one over with, then we're probably in the clear. 100%. But, yes, but I'm just calling you today, Patty, to uh, fill you in a little bit during your listeners on uh, regard, regarding the, the Charlie's Place uh, issue here in uh, Northwest Gander in Central, right? Yep. And, uh, well, I, it seems like all the latest cutting going on in the latest areas and the protected areas and all the stuff that the uh, government has released now on protecting these areas with the enhanced and uh, there's a 4.3 billion uh, patty and uh, coming down the line now released on April the 6th for protecting these areas and fast tracking these issues right for protected areas and indigenous leadership and and there's another 4.6 460 million set aside for IPCAs which is indigenous protected and conserved areas but uh, just a little bit of background on Charlie's place now it's a uh, it exists now between Northwest and Southwest River which is two of the you know, two of the top line uh, spawning grounds, probably on the island there. You know, across the island, and probably that's not in Canada. So you know, and it's, it's, the area would be in only a hundred, about 110 square kilometers. Patty is not really a real big area, and uh, in regardless to all the, we, we got all of our boxes checked. In regardless to a lot of protected areas, to concentrate on uh, waterfowl, and a lot of the other ones will be on uh, rare plant life and stuff like this, but. Charlie's place now. We we've got all of our boxes checked. We've got our point Martin there's back now from the uh, over an 80 year absence. There are a little bit of a few remaining caribou are settled in this area because we have uh, a lot of these a lot of these rare blue felt liking and a lot of liking that is in the area that uh, they like to feed on. And uh, boy, we lost about we estimated about 90 percent of our of our habitat of our caribou habitat around here now. And this uh, there's they're far and few between. Uh, it's just uh, we're just trying to get something looked after by for future generations. You know what I mean? And it's too bad that government has not seen it, seen it the way that we are, right? Okay, just a couple of things. So just for another uh, uh, relationship to where this parcel land is, somewhere around Glenwood, Appleton, right there, right? 
Yeah, well, I guess okay. a lot of people yeah, familiar with the Norwest. You know, people comes across that paddy, across Canada, across the world, you know, to hunt and fish this, this area right about, I'm going to say about 40 clicks via via the access road, Bowers access road, uh, up to up to Norwest, and it's probably about a 12, 15 kilometer if you're going to be, be a water, be Gander Lake, right up to, to this area. And boy, we we got uh, not only the residents is up against this, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's the it's the failure to be consulted, you know, because you know the main stem, Gander River, dissects Glenwood and Appleton right down the middle. And before this environmental assessment now was released uh, by the minister Bernard Davis, you know, there's a process that got to be involved here on consultation. And you would think, you know, that the mayor, of both councils of Appleton and Glenwood, would have been consulted. We got two chiefs in the area here, right? And for the Micmac First Nations, that was not consulted. The Gander River uh, Federation management was not consulted, and you know all these groups, all the above groups. Now we're, we're, we're we had a couple of meetings with government already, and it's too bad, Patty, we're not getting nowhere with it because like the importance of, as you know, in Newfoundland has no backcountry by and without habitat, you know, it's all going to be gone, right? Yeah, I did read the story one day last week. I think I referred to it as Charlie's Nest earlier, but it's Charlie's Place. And I I had a different number about the square kilometers, but that's not really the concern. And uh, one of the chiefs, uh, I believe his name is Calvin Francis. Charlie Francis is actually his great-great-grandfather, for which the area is named. But my understanding is that this parcel of land, there is a plan for corner pulp and paper to harvest wood there, right? But part of that is the commitment to submit a stakeholder engagement report. Has that happened? Yes. Now, we've been working with uh, our first meeting now was uh, with corner book pulp and paper uh, regardless to the stakeholders. Now, there's uh, they're only accepting uh, comments between, there's like four or five of us who made it to this first meeting. We were cut, really cut under time on this uh, less than a day's notice on this first meeting. So whoever showed up at that meeting uh, was considered stakeholders, and if uh, if, I, if I went up and uh, <laughs> if I found someone that lived on the land, or if I found Charlie himself, he wouldn't be considered a stakeholder because this was done, you know, just consult the stakeholders only. So this is the process, and we come up with the we found evidence now that the, there's a truth that we were not the, the people were not consulted in the beginning, like large organizations and stuff that were supposed to be consulted. So who's the stakeholder and who's not? You, you know what I mean? Who, who deserves to be heard? Hey. Sure. So you know the area used for hunting and trapping and fishing and what have you. So what's your proposal here? A complete moratorium on any use, including the harvest of timber, or what are you suggesting? Yeah, well, we're just looking at uh, you know, there's we got a lot of options by right across the board. You know what I mean? And uh, and support from all these federations and uh, with Atlantic Salmon Federation and, and the two councils and the chiefs and Halibu and boy, you know, there's a lot of options there and we fall with where act too, uh, Patty, there a little while back and uh, which is the Wilderness Ecological Resources Advisory Council. So they're ahead of protecting these lands and the funding is allotted for this and a simple little trade off because as you know, Cornerbrook Pulp Paper is the the only game in town now, the only mill in the province, uh, uh, you know, they got pretty much pick and choose now where they can go across this. This little, this little 100 kilometer area, I think, uh, could be spared, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, as far as I understood, until they submit the stakeholder engagement, I think you're asking a fair question as to what constitutes a stakeholder. No road work, no harvesting can happen until that's done. So this is something I suppose I'll have to chase through the minister's office, and that would be uh, Bernard Davis, uh, of course, environment minister. So, yeah, I'll do that much because I'm curious as to, to understand the process and where we are. Yeah, but one thing I'd just like to add now, Patty, but sure. I don't take too much of your time, but uh, 
this and uh, the a lot of residents here in the, in the New oh, not Newfoundland in between Gander Bay, uh, Glenwood and Appleton, and surrounding communities and stuff. And you know we got a lot of indigenous indigenous population here. And, and boy, we got stuff brought to the table in this last meeting. And we got living documents placing Charlie there. Charlie Francis, the first first settler between 1820 and 1830, Patty, with the living documents and biographies. And we got pictures of actually him being up there in, in his wigwam hunting with his sons in 1905. We got over 400 signatures. And uh, we got a Facebook page uh, backing us up to, or, you know, to get, get, get the message out there. It's called uh, Conservation of Northwest Gander, Protection and Conservation of Northwest Gander. And by the support of this, we, we've got, you know, MHAs and stuff. And it's been brought to the House of Assembly. And it's just falling on deaf ears right then with the. With this peace and reconciliation on the go by and all the all the Aboriginal history, I don't know if we got to go up and dig up some bones or, or <laughs> to get recognized or what, but uh, you know what I mean? I do understand where you're coming from. Uh, last question for you before I let you go, Justin. Is is there any implication regarding water supply? Uh, well, the towns is working more directly with the water supply. Uh, okay, no, I would imagine. I was just wondering if you had any uh, thoughts or top of mind stuff because I don't really know the the issue that well. So I was just throwing it out there. Oh, definitely, definitely, yes. And uh, we, boy, we got scientists in on this, Patty, and uh, mycologists and all with the rare plant life. Everything's been examined and stuff. And if that, you know, Charlie's place exists on a plateau, Patty, and. Uh, as you know, now plateau between two rivers, the water got to run off either north or south or west or east side. But if this canopy is removed, you know, large, we got 80, 90 year old trees up there that's uh, keeping the groundwater in these ice cold springs. That, that's you know, they, they, it runs out into when we need our cold water in the for our rivers in the summertime. You know, they're they're getting hotter every year because global warming and whatever. But these these cold water springs and tributaries, hundreds and thousands of tributaries, runs off the edges of the plateaus. It cools and incubates the, the you know spawning grounds. Mine is very very important. You know, and the, and the, the soil up there, Patty, is mostly glacial till. So once this is dried out and the ground obviously dries out and the, and, the, and the, the vegetation cover vanishes, and so this is going to be silt added to every tributary, which is going to directly affect the uh, two rivers. Well, it's going to be a domino effect, for sure. Justin, this is live feedback from the Department of the Environment, uh, as you and I speak. Uh, in the consult- I'm just reading what they're telling me. Uh, in the consultation process now, one of the conditions on the release was to consult with the five individuals that submitted concerns during the environmental assessment process. There's been two meetings already. Another one is scheduled. Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper have to consult, and that's a, a condition of the release. So that's where we are. That's the quick update from the department but we're always happy to try to chase for additional information but we do appreciate the department sending that along uh, uh thank you for your time this morning justin stay in touch yeah sure Pat. thanks a million buddy have a good day you too all the best bye bye uh quick check with dave how we doing out there david when we come back whatever we're talking about that's up to you don't go away weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 jump start your day with jerry lynn Mackey and ben murphy newsmakers traffic weather and more during your vocm morning show welcome back let's go back to line number one mary you're on the air Yes, hello. Uh, I'd like to um, to respond to uh, the lady who called about the drivers. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm calling from the Cornerbrook area. In uh, uh, anybody who's familiar with the Millbrook intersection knows that when you're coming out from the shopping centre, you cannot make a left turn. You either have to go straight or turn right. So one day. Uh, uh, myself and my son were in the car, and uh, I noticed the car ahead of me uh, with the left signal on. 
So it was a red light. I got out and I tapped on the window. Uh, and I told the gentleman he could not turn, make a left turn. So when I got back in the car, my son said, uh, what did you do? I said, well, I looked down the back of his car and I saw the dealership ID said Gander. So I knew he wasn't from here. So I got out to let him know that he could not make a left turn on that light. So uh, just a little um, tip for people who uh, see things. And like the lady said, because it's a Newfoundland plate, don't assume that people know their way around. Of course not. And, you know, you could have maybe made your way to Gander to buy a vehicle but live in St. John's or Cornerbrook because they had the kind of vehicle you were looking for. So there's lots of reasons to believe that folks who are unfamiliar with the area might just make the wrong turn because they don't know any different. So you're just trying to be helpful. What was the reaction of the driver when you knocked on the window? Well, when I tapped on the window and he looked at me uh, and I just motioned for him to put his window down, uh, I said, sir, you, you can't make a left turn on this light. You either have to go straight or you have to turn right. And I said, if you go straight, well, at that time, City Hall was in the old City Hall there by, by the shopping mall. Okay. Uh, by the Valley Mall. And uh, I said, you can go in around the city hall and turn and then come and make that, uh, make that, uh, you know, uh, turn there on your right then when you're coming out that way. So uh, anyway, he was very appreciative of uh, me letting him know that back years ago in the 70s, you could make a right turn or left turn, but there were so many accidents there. They they changed it in the late 70s to just go straight or turn right. But uh, to somebody who doesn't know the area, how would they know? 100%, and I'm, I'm glad they received the information the way they did because nobody wants to be driving the wrong way. Right? I mean, I think that's probably a fair thing to say. I appreciate the time this morning, Mary. Thanks for the call. Oh, and one more thing sure. before we go. go ahead. Uh, not only in regards to in-city driving, but I do a lot of highway driving. And one morning I was on the highway, uh, heading towards Cornerbrook. And when I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw a guy on a motorcycle, and he was uh, obviously going fast. And when I looked up again, he was almost right into my bumper. And when I looked, uh, he passed, but he passed while he was passing me. There was a car in the passing lane right alongside of me. So what he did, he pulled out from behind me and came in between me and the other car. Boy, oh boy. It's just amazing the risk people are willing to take. And by, like, he was going so fast, there was no time to react to pull over a license plate or anything. He just, uh, he had his head down and all I could see was the eyes through the helmet. And uh, he was close enough to me when the last time I looked in my rearview mirror that I could actually see his eyes. And then I looked because I noticed there was a car line, like, um, passing me in the passing lane. And I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? And when I looked again in my rear side rearview mirror, uh, there was, he wasn't even in the side rearview mirror because he was right in between me and the car. We see more and more of these scary incidents on the uh, province's roads because of all the dash cams that people have now. So it literally shocks me some of the risks that people take when they're going to make a pass. Anyway, glad that it didn't end up with being a, a tragedy on the province's highways, but appreciate the time, Mary. Thank you for this. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I mean, I'm sure you see them as much as I do.
especially with the truckers. Most of them, I think, have dash cams. Maybe it's uh, obligatory for the truckers, but to see the way that people are just willing to risk life and limb to make a pass on the highway is really quite, quite something. Uh, let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Liberal member for Fogo Island, Cape Friels. He's the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and uh, Agriculture. That's Derek Bragg. Minister Bragg, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Thanks for taking my call. I'm happy to take your call. Just before we get into whatever you want to talk about, sir, I don't know if you heard the call uh, I had with Justin from Mountain Central talking about the concerns that the stakeholders, whoever the stakeholders might be, with the uh, land at Charlie's Place and the forestry plan for Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper, of course, Kruger Inc. Any thoughts on the matter as to the consultation process and some potential for protection to be offered in Charlie's Place? So I, I know I went through the environmental assessment process and they went through the consultation process. So Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper, I am aware of what's going on. I'm copied on all the correspondence. I'm actually here in Cornerbrook this morning at our at our office in Cornerbrook. So I'm going to have a, a conversation, I guess, after this call with the um, with the director for forestry. Yesterday I was out in Virgil, as you guys would have known. We did an announcement on aquaculture. But this morning, Pat, I want to call about two two programs, I guess, uh, that are reaching or coming up for deadline. One is the big game license. The other one is become the outdoors woman. Okay. So on the on the big game, I know that 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 spurred a lot of interest when when we went through to uh, the the motions this year to go all 100% online. Uh, so the deadline for that is this Friday. I was down met with the staff this morning. The phone lines are really slowing down. Uh, they're on top of their calls. There may be some late calls come in or lunchtime calls that come in, but I just want people to, to continue to reach out. Uh, we're over 71,000 people now registered as of yesterday. The number to call is 273 or, oh, look, no, that's your number. I was going to say, the no sense calling me. Gonna, they call you, Patty, and they'll get it all straightened out. <laughs> so it's 637 <laughs> Forget the 273 number. So 637 Or they can email wildlifelicense at gov.nl.ca. And uh, so we have uh, extra staff on, and, and we look like to be on cue for Friday would be our final day. So I'm encouraging everyone who has not called in to call in and register for their big game license. Fair enough. There was some confusion about the time it took to get through and whether or not there was a lag in getting a response. But hopefully with the, uh, the additional staff, those who want to apply will be able to do it in efficient fashion. Uh, before we move on to whatever else is, uh, just regarding the aquaculture uh, announcement yesterday. So Grieg is going to be able to expand their operations. It's going to be start located out of Burgio, I believe. Yes. Any additional parameters, oversight or monitoring? Because we do know we've had several incidents of massive die-offs and whether it be uh, uh, ISA and other outbreaks and the concerns people have with antibiotics. And Is there anything changing regarding the process of what's allowed and what's not? Because every time that we hear about a massive die-off, they'll talk about, well, we need deeper nets or airification systems. But we hear that every time, and I don't even know if they're implementing them. So is there any additional safeguards in place now with their expansion? So I, I guess it's forever changing. I mean, as I was living learning that organization and, and what's going on in that oil industry, uh, we're, we're like, I talked to the people from Norway. They experience similar situations we do from time to time. We, 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 we have it and we're not proud of it, obviously. Uh, we were in Virgil yesterday and this question came up about the die-offs and what happens with the die-offs. It actually becomes fertilizer now in, in I think, 100% of the cases. And Virgil would be the area, I think it's better 
Mary's plant there that processes it and sends it out to the farmers. But uh, we're in constant contact with, with, the, with the people with Greg and with Moe. Our staff is on site, um, I wouldn't say every day, but on a regular basis. And we're always Like, we don't want to see any die-offs. Obviously, the company don't want to see die-offs. It's, it's a big lasting revenue. Uh, it's, it's bad. It just looks bad in the, in the media when there is a die-off. I mean, we're getting better. We're getting safer nets. We're getting deeper nets. We're getting better technology, and I think we're getting more more adapted to to the Newfoundland climate than ever before. And and again, what, you never know what nature could throw at you, but I do feel that, that that right now people are being more serious than ever before in developing the best technology ever to do a great job in aquaculture. Yeah, I mean, fluctuation of water temperature, what have you, is a natural occurrence that we can't do anything about. But when they talk about the government being the overseer of the industry, government also has a vested interest in in agriculture, aquaculture, pardon me, and expansion therein. So is it maybe an idea to have a quasi-independent board that would be involved in the oversight, the monitoring, the, the penalties, and to ensure that companies are living up to any anything that they could be putting in place, deeper nets, filtration, or air, airification systems, or what have you, because people think it's a bit of a fox watching the hen house. Uh, yeah, well, people can probably get that perception off of Patty, but I assure you, we got some of the best staff you would ever find nationally that work for our department, and they're continually to monitor the aquaculture, and there's reporting systems in place now that were never there previously in years, so they got like 24 and 48 hours to report. Uh, our veterinarians are in constant contact with their veterinarians and we uh, and with their staff. I'm like, we're, we're going to do the best possible job we can. Right now, I'm not looking at any other oversight committee other than our own internal staff. Yeah, and this is not a condemnation of staff, but as you are well aware, perception is reality when we talk about politics. So if there was more independence granted to oversight, that may indeed alleviate some of the concerns that someone might be turning a blind eye to one occurrence or another, one die-off or another, one ISA outbreak or another. But okay, point taken. I know you all also want to get to one other topic before we run out of time. So the other one is on May 13th to the 15th at Lions Maxim Camp in Bishop Falls. We'll be hosting the Outdoors Woman and Family Program. It was, an, it was previously announced last year. Actually, I think this is the 25th anniversary of becoming an Outdoors Woman Program for the province. Last year, because of the COVID numbers and the outbreaks, it was canceled. So we took all the entrants from last year to registrants as first this year. And if numbers do, do warrant it, we're probably going to look at hosting a second program before this season is out because it's a great opportunity to learn about the outdoors. It's all about uh, the basic, uh, I guess the basic if you get out in nature, the techniques you would use from lighting a fire to safe use of firearms, archery equipment. It's actually outdoor cooking survival, basic angling techniques. So it seems to be a great program. Uh, I know when we announce it, it fills up so fast. So this year we may actually introduce a second, second weekend to to put it off and again it's on May 13 to the 15. Fair enough, and uh, I know people who have actually been involved in that program quite enjoyed it. Uh, one last question for you before we go. I know that there's been uh, the request for public engagement into some amendments or changes to the Animal Health and Protection Act. Where are we in that process? So the public engagement is online right now. If you go on, log on to Engage NL, you'll see the, the our questionnaires there. Uh, we had some, as one of our staff said, uh, we had some wicked uptake in the first couple of days, some great comments from people, and I can't do enough only encourage people to log on to engage in and do their part and take their part in our survey. 
So uh, there's going to be amendments one way or the other. This is just a public consultation just process? A public consultation and engaging now seems to be a good venue and a good opportunity to reach out to people. Uh, we'll be talking to groups and I'll be talking to groups like the SPCA in particular on, for their input like on a first come, on a, on a face-to-face basis. But uh, engaging now is definitely the place to go to register your concerns or any changes you feel necessary. Uh, as the minister responsible, where are some things that we can tighten up in the animal health? Health and Protection Act. That's a great question because there's so much to look at there. I mean, you know, the one thing that comes to me is stray cats and how many stray cats someone should have on their property. I know that was an issue when I worked for the town. It was an issue. I mean, in Cronenbrook, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, someone vacated their house and there was like 200 stray cats mm-hmm. there. Yep. Like, that's something. And, and they're in every community. I mean, one time it was roaming dogs petting, and you don't seem to see that anymore. I think people pay too much for their pet, and pet is too much to family. But we don't want to see abuse of any animals of any kind. I appreciate the time this morning. So for folks who would like to be involved in that particular process, it's an easy one. It's just engagenl.ca. Appreciate your time, Minister Bragg. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Derek Bragg. He's the member for Fogo Island, Cape Friels, and the minister responsible for uh, fisheries, forestry, and agriculture. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Wayne. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing? Top shelf today. Wayne, how you doing? Oh, same thing. Top shelf, Patty. Good man. Sorry, sorry to stay there. Anyway, bring uh, <clears throat> <pardon> me <clears throat> going. I'm out for the highway here, and I'll pull off, Patty, so you may get some traffic noise. Do you hear me? No problem. Go right ahead. Okay, yeah. So I wanted to I have some concerns about the uh, regional government, and I have to confess that there's a little bit cloudy right now just how this is all supposed to work so i'm presuming that the regional government is another layer between the uh, municipal councils and the department of municipal affairs i hear people say that it's adding different layers or additional layers of government and maybe i'm thinking about it all wrong but for me it eliminates certain layers of government because if i had for instance in one of the 25 so-called regions and i had just pick a round number 20 different municipal councils and now all of a sudden i have one regional board to me that kind of feels like taking away some governance so but does that mean that there after uh, the regional councils are established that there will be no uh, local municipal council? Well, I don't know if there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that question, to be honest with you, Wayne, but it's a good one. But let's just imagine that if we had, you know, elections that included, there has to be one representative from these two communities sitting on council and what have you, so that it was widespread as opposed to the larger community inside the region was able to so-called dominate the council table. So I guess we have to be very careful to have representation across the board as opposed to, yeah, if all of a sudden uh, all of the regional government comes from Gander Grand Falls in that particular region, region then we didn't really achieve a whole lot well you know there's probably a, a niche in there for regionalizations but my concern number one is that if you if you read through the municipalities act there's lots of references in there to establishing uh, regional governance and so on but there's nothing in there that guarantees access to the uh, people that are being uh, you know, that are supposedly the beneficiaries of whatever regional services are to be provided. There's there's no way, there's nothing mentioned there about holding public meetings or 
being answerable to the public or anything like that. It just talks about the structure of it. I would imagine that, that if there's any further move down this path, it's going to require amendments to the Municipalities Act because we'll have a different landscape that wouldn't be even reflected in that uh, current piece of legislation. So I would imagine they go hand in glove, to be honest with you. And you know, the concept of, I don't want to pay more to get no additional services or to possibly get less is a fair concern to offer. But I don't, you know, there's also mentioned in the report that it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have to pay more tax if you become part of a cooperative solution. And even inside the incorporated municipalities, the numbers are really quite clear that unless there's formalized partnerships or cooperation or collaboration, before long, we're just going to be forced to do it. What is there, 275 uh, incorporated municipalities, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 odd percent of those have a population fewer than a thousand. The age of the average age in those uh, communities is quite clear as well. So before long, the requirement of a, uh, the required uh, tax base, pardon me, to pay for services is just going to force us down the road of cooperating more than we do today. So I think it's kind of inevitable. And for me, you know, of course, it's not going to be uh, the same exact setup in different parts of the province. But getting out in front of something is always a less chaotic way and maybe a less expensive way to deal with what's coming, whether we like it or not, rather than reacting after the fact. Well, I'm, at this stage of the game, Patty, I'm not uh, concerned really about the taxing component of it. I mean, that'll all come out later, I guess. But what I am concerned about is the access that the public has to air their issues or to uh, advocate for change. And the case in point is <clears throat> I'm on the way down to Terranova now, supposedly for a council meeting tonight. And this is the... Uh, fourth attempt, I guess. I made two attempts to get an agenda. That was denied. I made an attempt to uh, allocate a bit of time before council to pose some questions, and that was denied. And so I'm on the way down there now, and given that we were told there's a meeting tonight, and this is just a little local uh, council. What happens in a regional council where you know, you for the most part won't know most of the people that are that are representing or that are sitting on the board. And so, what provisions are there, or will there be in the legislation to guarantee the public, not optional for the for the regional board to say yay or nay, but guarantee the public access to decision making and access to whatever issues these people are thinking about access and knowledge about what they're considering imposing on the public Fair enough. I mean, to keep the public in the loop, whether it be with potential for town halls and to uh, pre-publish agenda for council meetings, the public with the ability to attend council meetings, all of those things should absolutely be part and parcel with whatever moves are entertained here. And I don't know why they wouldn't be. It would be completely irresponsible of the minister or any of these regional governments not to ensure not only just continued access, but enhanced access and enhanced public consultation because the decisions will be more impactful and more important than ever before because it'll concern more and more people. Well, I agree, Patty, but that's what I'm suggesting here, but that will only be there if it is <clears throat> written into the Municipalities Act. Sure. If there's public interest and they are obligated, not, it's not their option to do it or not to do it, they are obligated to do it. 
I, I couldn't under, agree more. Under the legislation. Yeah, and I, from where I sit as of now, I'm not so sure there's any reason to think that that won't be in China in legislation. But if anyone's considering not including it, well, we can, in short order, make sure it does happen because we all know that the issue of public access and to understand what regional boards or councils are considering is sacrosanct, and we should never decrease our opportunity to be involved. I'm with you 100% on that one, one, Wayne. Yes, but we got to do everything to encourage it. And what I'm seeing out of the municipal council and the little banana republic of Terranova is that they're, they're being evasive at best and probably deceptive at worst in trying to uh, involve the public in, in what is going on in the town. And if you look down, which I've done through minutes of the past, I don't know, 24 months of meetings out there, there's all kinds of things that the public should have been damn well made aware of that are being done out there that is not really, that's in the interest of a handful of people, but not in the general interest of the public. And here I am trying to arrange a, a discussion period with them, and what they say is, well, Mr. Holloway, you can meet with the council privately, but you can't have 15 or 20 minutes in a public meeting. And what, I, what I'm thinking about is, like, I'm rep- I could be representing 50 members of the voting public out there or the taxpaying public that have issues, and 49 of them can't sit at the meeting and hear the questions being posed and the answer and the responses from council. Like, how does that fit? That sounds more like the Soviet Union than, than a democratic society to me. It's certainly furthest thing from ideal. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Wayne. Anything else quick before I take a break? No, that's it, Patty. Thank you for the time. I always appreciate that, and uh, stay well. You too, Wayne. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, Patrick Surrey wants to talk about what's happening with healthcare in Central. Don't go away. You're VOCM, 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number three. Patrick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's Patrick calling from McCallowick, Nunavut. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not bad, boy. Not bad. Listen, I, I tell you something that uh, that I wanted to call this morning and, and, and talk about something that's very, very near and dear to my heart, and that's healthcare, uh, particularly in, in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I'm an expat, and, um, you know, I, I've been mulling over whether I'm going to retire in Newfoundland or not. Uh, and the, the reason I'm, I'm hesitant is because of the the state of healthcare, especially in western Newfoundland, you know, and and uh, west of Cornerbrook, the base in George area, which I'm from. Um, and I don't want to talk about the problems because I, I'd like to talk about a solution. And uh, um, I believe it's time that uh, nurse practitioners be paid uh, uh, by MCP for fee for service. Uh, like I know in the base in George area, there are some NPs that uh, they bill the patient X number of dollars for a visit every year. And I don't believe patients should have to pay that with a, with a universal healthcare concept, you know? Uh, um, it's all right if you've, if you've got a really decent pension and you pay X number of dollars per year to, to, see, uh, to see a nurse practitioner. But uh, a lot of working poor and the poor can't afford that. And I believe it's time that, that uh, the governments of Newfoundland and Labrador, in conjunction with uh, the medical care plan people, and the ministers start taking a look at fee-for-service. I know in the New England states, 
Um, I have a relative of mine who's married to uh, a nurse who just finished her PhD, and they get, I believe, 80% of a doctor's salary. And I, I believe your 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 salary should be your your fee should be based on you know your, obviously your education, your experience, whether you have a master's, you have a PhD, or whatever. And uh, uh, because a nurse practitioner can do probably about 85 to 90% of what a doctor can do, I'm not saying it will solve all of our problems. I don't think it will. Uh, uh, but I think it would be perhaps a step in the right direction. And I, I, given some of the challenges that Newfoundland and Labrador is facing right now, I really believe that one particular issue, if they did it, you might be able to attract more nurse practitioners to either remain or to come into the province. Again, doctors are the ideal. But if you can't get a doctor, at least if you've got a nurse practitioner uh, running fee-for-service, uh, you know, um, it, it's... Uh, it's at least a comparable solution, you know. Um, I, I, I open it for discussion and debate, uh, uh, but I do think it's something that I think the province needs to seriously, seriously take a look at. Uh, bad enough that we can't get doctors in and we're losing doctors, but if we're losing nurse practitioners too, that's really not good, you know. Uh, I know in the Basin, Georgia area in particular, where I'm from, I'm from port port East originally, and I lived in Stephenville for years, Um you know, healthcare now is getting desperate. If you already got a family doctor, good for you. But there's a lot of people in the base in Georgia that don't have a family doctor. And even getting to see a nurse practitioner is really, really difficult. So I, I'm just putting it out there today as somebody who, uh, like, you know, I, I've, uh, I'm like a lot of people, uh, 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 you know, nearing the age of retirement, shall we say. Um, uh, you know, I do have some health issues, and I don't want to go to an area where I can't get access to healthcare on a timely basis. You know, I got to wait until emerge for nine or ten hours. Uh, uh, that just won't work for me. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that to be selfish or anything. I'm just saying that that's a reality. And I'd love to return to the problem. Uh, you know, uh, but you know, healthcare is a huge, huge issue. And again, you know, Patty, I'm just throwing it out there this morning. Um, I know we've got, uh, you know, uh, we face a lot of monumental province uh, problems in this province as of, as of late, but I think it would go a long way uh, to have some serious discussions uh, about uh, allowing nurse practitioners to build fee-for-service and have a pay scale that's fair to them and fair to the province and fair to the clients or patients that they serve. Just something I'm putting out there anyway. Sure, well, that's a pretty popular thought. Um, if the nurse practitioner is operating one of the collaborative care clinics, it will be a clinic bill. If they establish their own standalone independent office, it's a fee for service, generally around $30 per visit. And you're right, for some people, it's the same kind of conversation we're having about the lack of access to a free rapid antigen test kit. For folks who don't have the money, they're not going to take that opportunity to go see an independent nurse practitioner or to buy a test kit. So we've got to realize and recognize exactly what the reality is for so many people. People, including the most vulnerable people in the community. And if a nurse practitioner wants to move to port port East and set up shop, I still do not understand the rationale behind not being able to direct bill MCP. There's never been a real good reason that I would consider a good reason or a legitimate reason as to why not, but it would certainly take away some of the burden on the system, no doubt. Listen, thank you for your time, Patty. I really, really appreciate it. Look forward to hearing from you again sometime in the future. Appreciate the call. Thanks, Patrick. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep going. Line number six. Paula, you're on the air. Hi there. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks. How about you? I'm well. I call. This is my second time calling. I called last year around the same time. Okay. In regards to the aggressive driving bad habits, 
so we've been in the province just less than 24 months, um, and I just, I'm not blaming, and I don't want us to keep blaming the locals because we're not from the area, because you can do a little bit of research before you make your trip, just to see where about you're going to be, if there are any particular things that you should know about the area. That's what I like to do. Um, I just, I think the, the driving habits are passed along, the bad driving habits, instead of taking a driving course, you should, you know, maybe consider it. I did. I'm a defensive driver, and since I moved back to the province, I've probably used every technique that I was taught. Left, center, right, expect the unexpected. And I just, I, I think that you should maybe, like, consider giving your kids uh, a driving course before you, they get their car. And I think you should go back to maybe the lingo because there's no accidents, there's collisions and crashes. And I think, like, me driving in New York City or Toronto, if I ever go to go up a one-way street, they're not going to be kind. That's not going to jive that I'm not from here. And I'm not comparing Newfoundland to New York City, of course, but it's just the ideal to, to, to look before maybe you travel just to see because, yeah, Cornerbrook is tricky, and so is St. John's. But I think we should just um, maybe, you know, instead of teaching our kids bad habits or our nieces or nephews or our friends, perhaps look into taking a professional driving course. And then you can maybe get a little reduction on your insurance. Well, I was, that's the exact point I was going to make. The reason why our boys had professional uh, courses, because we got a break on the insurance. And you're right, you know, bad behaviors are learned, no doubt about that. You know, you add into the attitude of the driver to the what has become a real problem is the distracted driver driver but a bit of preparation for when you're about to hit the road is helpful let's just say you're on your own in a vehicle you could have sat in front of the computer and had a close look at you know what are some of the uh, red flags that might pop up as i travel through the city of Cornerbrook or wherever mm-hmm. but it becomes a little bit more difficult when all of a sudden you're not sitting in front of that computer screen and now the the landscape is now manifesting itself and it's right in front of you easy enough to still with all the preparation in the world just make one false move and all of a sudden you got yourself in a bit of a tangle, but it's a fair point. 100%. It, yeah. I don't okay. leave myself vulnerable because if I do feel like I'm not going to get that visual or that auditory that I had, I'll just kind of talk with the local. Is it left here? Is it right here? How do I get there? Because they're more than willing to help. Yeah, and you know, uh, every now and then I would slip up and call something an accident when it's a collision. You're, uh, that, there's it a big is, difference between the two. And crashes. There are no accidents. There are not. Because everything is preventable when you're behind that wheel, you know? You, you For the most part, sure. You can't expect the moose. Expect the moose to just jump in the road. Expect the plane to drop. Professional defensive driving teaches you to expect the unexpected. I have, like I said, I've used every technique, especially with the pavement from Gander Bay. That's where I live in the Gander Bay area. Wow. Every time I leave the house, I do expect the unexpected, and I prep to maybe help somebody because... Wow, it's that, that highway, I've never seen the likes, and that's why I called last year about that specific highway. Not only is the, it's, it's like gravel at the pavement, there's potholes everywhere, but it's, it's an 80-kilometer zone. I understand 85, maybe even 90, but ooh, when you're driving in excess and then you're flipping me the bird and you're old enough to be my dad, and then you're verbalizing how you feel about me because I am doing 85, you know? So I just wanted to say that sometimes those habits are learned. Um, I do see uh, a lot of the uh, culture uh, is just a giver over that road. And like say, you're going nowhere fast because you're just going to gander like me and see at Walmart. 
Pretty much. And, you know, some of the, I remember some of the uh, Young Drivers of Canada courses that I took when I was getting my license, which is quite a long time ago now. But look well ahead. Some people don't look past their own front bumper. So it's the look well ahead. Correct. The, the point of no return, and that as it pertains to coming to a yellow light. Uh, so those types of things stick in my mind. And then it's Correct. the defense that will not be accepted by a cop is that if you come off the highway onto the off-ramp and then onto, say, Portugal Cove Road, and you're going too fast and you say, well, I was, I'm velocitized. <laughs> that was some of the things I can remember uh, yeah. sticking out quite clearly. Anyway, there you go. I mean, there are safe habits, and I just encourage, instead of getting your son or daughter or niece or nephew that car, get them that driving course. And it can be preventative when, when you know, there's just expect the unexpected. And like you said, point and no return and, and uh, just fall back in your seat when you stop. And just give courtesy. Treat others like you want to be treated outside that car. And you might save yourself some headaches because learning to drive can be frustrating, especially trying to teach someone how to park when you might struggle with it yourself. So as opposed to button heads with your own child and both being mad at each other when you're just trying to teach someone how to drive, maybe you can spare yourself some of that emotional turmoil as well by getting a pro a pro to teach him or her. I appreciate the time this morning, Paula. Thank you for I the annual update. Thank you so much. See you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, Brian's there. He wants to talk about Pax Lovett. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Polly. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking, Brian. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very good. I was thinking about you and your friends about the OCM last week with the passing of Gila Fleur. Um, just before I got what I, what I got to say, you know... I, I'm, I'm not a Montreal fan or anything, but I'm a big Chicago fan. And uh, I was sad to see uh, the passing of Guy Lafleur. He was a good man. He was a good player. And more than anything else, I, I, when I taught in Prince Albert, there was a French teacher who was head of French department, and he told me about how people like Lafleur and uh, Rocket Richard represented the French culture. And, you know, they really did. And I know that ourselves in Quebec had our fights, but, boy, we got a lot of people like yourself who are big Canadian fans. Unfortunately, you have them on this cup in, you know, the last 100 years, but you'll win it again. But I was thinking about you, and Gail first was a good man. He was certainly a fine player, uh, and of course, anyone who is a Montreal Canadiens fan uh, of a certain vintage that would remember Lafleur as a player would have him somewhere way up near the top of the list as their faves, because he was just that—he was an electrifying guy. And uh, sad loss, but of course, the Canadians, whether you like them or lump them, they do a fine job with those uh, ceremonial type games, like they did with all of the former teammates of Guy in attendance. I guess that was Sunday night, was it? Yeah. I didn't see it. I heard your. I think with Madour, Mr. Madour was on your radio station, was there and said that, of course, Montreal does a good job at, at these ceremonies. What I wanted to talk to you, uh, Patty, about was uh, I wanted to congratulate the, uh, the man, the, the gentleman, the Second World War vet, who finally got his better case that he needed for the virus. And I got another take on it. You know, when I think about it, when we look at what's happening in Ukraine today, we can just imagine what people like this man went through so me and you can have the freedoms that we have, and we do a certain amount of our freedoms. And when it came to stand by him, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't think we did a very good job. And for people who fought in a war, 
and who gave their body and souls, I think they deserve better treatment than a government saying, well, this is only our, our policy. Well, you know, when it comes to saving lives, that's true. But when this man fought in the war and fought for the freedom for governments that have policies, I congratulate him. I congratulate his daughter for coming on your show and defending him so very well. And I hope we treat our veterans a little a little better in the future. They deserve it. Yeah, how we treat our veterans is a key measure of uh, society. I don't dispute that at all. And I understand your thoughts uh, surrounding him being a veteran, but we also have to remember there may be a full swath of veter- of uh, seniors, pardon me, and super seniors that did not fight in the war. In fact, just how many women might fall in that category. So I understand your thought there, but I think we just have to have a little bit more easy to understand guidelines, maybe more in line with other jurisdictions. There's also a worry, and I think a legitimate one, is not everybody has a on to fight on their behalf. So, so to take the social media, to go on the various media outlets, to come on this show and fight the good fight, and whether or not that was the eventual uh, influence that put the decision over the top to prescribe Paxlova to Mr. Dion, because not everyone has that champion in their corner. So I hope that's not why the decision was made the way it is, but it sounds like they've made a real... Uh, an additional layer of work when we're going to have a case-by-case basis evaluation of whether or not Paxlovid is the right course of treatment, so as opposed to some amendment to the guidelines to make it easier to understand. Uh, yeah, I agree with you there, but, you know, when we do make policies, and one of these things, for example, and, and I particularly wasn't a fan of uh, Brian Peckford, but uh, a friend of his told me years later that when, when, it, when stuff came before his government where he had to lay off people, he found it very hard. He used to put himself into position of those people who lost his jobs. And, you know, I got a lot of respect for Brian Peckford, even though I'm, I don't support his party. But I think in future, when we make policies, I, will, I hope that our premier and our opposition leader would put themselves in people's positions and say, you know, I don't know if this is such a great idea. I'd like to thank you for letting me come on your show this morning. Uh, again, I, 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 I remember you, and when I think about Gila Fleur, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Chicago will win the Cup someday, perhaps ahead of Montreal, but they'll win it. Yeah, both teams have got a bit of figuring out to do where they go next, of course, because some of the big stars that carried the Hawks are getting up their age, even though Kane's having another good season. But poor old Montreal this year, boy, it was a disaster. But anyway, hope for better things than the years to well, come. You know, Patty, Chicago was so bad, I don't think they'd be able to beat the Growlers. <laughs> good morning. See you, Brian. Take good care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning, Patty, and good morning to all the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians listening to VOCN this morning. Uh, I just wanted to sort of share something with you. Yesterday, I went out and I had several errands to do. And anyway, while I was doing them, I actually lost one of my good earrings, which is uh, which are very sentimental to me because they were given to me by, by my best friends. And uh, so I felt really sad when I got home yesterday and found that I had lost it. But anyway, between it all, I sort of backtracked where I was too, but nobody could find it. 
And this morning, uh, I was at the post office on the Kenmont Road yesterday also. And by the time I got home and found out that I lost my earring, um, the post office had already closed. But the first thing this morning, we were in contact with them. And lo and behold, somebody, I guess, that came in on the back of me yesterday had picked it up and turned it in. So to that person, I want to thank them very, very much. Because, as I said, those earrings meant a lot to me. And I want to thank him uh, wholeheartedly uh, for doing what they did and for the post office also for uh, holding them for me. So uh, my big thank you to that person this morning. I don't know who it is, but I do want to say thank you so much. Still good people out there, good honest people, and of course, you know full well if you pick something up, someone will indeed be looking and re- retracing their steps, see if they can find it themselves. So yes, please, when you find whatever under the sun and you know it's not yours, bring it to the closest counter where someone may have been a patron. So the grocery store, the bank, or the post office. In this case, I'm glad you got it back. And of course, what oh, yes. is one earring of any of any value to someone who picked it up? So they did the right thing. Yeah, no, they did, absolutely, and I do want to thank him so much. And uh, thank you, OCM, too, for listening to this little story this morning. We're happy to have you on the show, Linda. Thank you. Okay, you have a great day, Patty. You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, there we go. Earring returned in its rightful ear. How we doing, David? Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we can switch it up to talk about whatever you like, or you can elaborate on something you've already heard on the show. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, I'll call it interesting email exchange. So the concept of the nurse practitioner being able to set up a private clinic and to bill MCP, which is not currently the way it's structured. And the thought offered by one of the listeners is that the rationale is really quite clear, is that they want it to be all about the success of the collaborative care clinic, as opposed to accommodating some region that might not see one. The thought also is extended to the fact that, you know, there will be these collaborative teams in other parts of the province, because currently there's only three clinics and they're all in town. So yes, there's going to be expansion, so says the department. But we also have to remember that it's going to be impossible to service the entirety of the province with collaborative care clinics. So in one smaller region or another, if a nurse practitioner decides to set up shop, it still doesn't alleviate the concern with having to pay cash on the barrel head for their treatment. So I said in reaction, not every region has one, and they're all in town, and so I'm told I'm silly and short-sighted, but I mean, proof is in the action, not in what the government says it might do or will do, it's whether or not they can actually pull it off. Add to the fact that we've still got a concern with the just staffing up these clinics, right? It's legitimate and it's very, very real. There's got to be some way to deal with the fact that if a, a doctor is wooed to join the clinic and shut down their own practice, what becomes of their patients? Because we've just created a problem for those patients who are now without a doctor to accommodate probably more people in the clinic, but it might not include those patients who are on the active doctor's roster. So maybe the ability to bring some, I think I've heard a bunch of confusing stories 
as to whether or not they can or whether there's some preference given or try some fairness to select as X number of patients to join this clinic, as opposed to what is now in place, is you have to go to Patient Connect NL and register yourself to ho- possibly and hopefully get assigned one of these clinics so you can get back in there. It also doesn't necessarily address the issue surrounding the continuity of care. Same thing we talked about when it was the temporary closure of the wait list for the Jacob Potter Memorial Foundation. Same thing with the comfort level you have with your GP, who you may have seen for a decade or two, and now all of a sudden, that point of contact might be different. It feels like you're starting from scratch, and I know change is hard, but that's the way that it's going to evolve in this province. You know full well. Now, come the middle of May, when we get a look at this blueprint for implementation of the Health Accord's 57 recommendations, might have a better idea of exactly where the province is going in the healthcare delivery model, but anyway, let's roll. Let's go to line number three. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hey, uh, there's a tender out now out on the West Coast for electric work into Department of Transportation. And uh, there's an open column for bids, but there's three contracts going to be given out. And the area from Port of Bass to, to St. Anthony is divided up into three different contracts. But in the tender, there's a lot, as far as I'm concerned, the bids are into the tenders, the way they got it written. And this is the way that the government is doing these tenders today. Like, instead of having one tender, and now one tender can get three contracts or or two tenders or one tender or whatever. But, uh, you know, if they had a list, instead of going to this to uh, get these tenders, if they had a list of people qualified in the communities around that, you know, got their electrical license or whatever, or say it's plumbing or whatever, you know, it don't matter what it is or what trade it is. But if they had a list of qualified people that could do the work that's in the community rather than having people traveling around all over the place, I think it would be a big savings for for the people, put more employment into the smaller communities. Sure, but how do you uh, go about starting that list? Would that be people who have the qualifications put their name forward to the government? Is that what you suggest? Right. Okay. Right. Now, another thing into it, they got uh, overtime. They got overtime uh, rated at one and a half times the uh, bid amount. Say if they bid $100 an hour, the overtime rate is $150 an hour. Now, a contractor would love that, but to the government dollars, it's detrimental because normally if you are got a company and you're uh, – say your expenses and everything all during the week, your mortgage, your rent or whatever, and your heat and light and, you know, your accounting services and everything else are all included into that $100 an hour. Now you're getting time and a half on that money, whereas the only expense that is costing the, the contractor is the man that he got working, say, is $20 an hour, $30 an hour. Well, it's either 10 or $15 added on to the price. Whereas now they're going to get, with this uh, this amount from the taxpayers, they're going to get time and a half on all of their expenses. Like, not many companies got the uh, their time and a half rate at one and a half times their basic hourly rate during the week because of that. So now the government has given them really an extra boost, which is, like I said, good for the contractor. The contractor probably hate me for saying it. But... Overall, is not the economical for the government. And also, another thing that they're asking for, 
is that they enter into a contract, whereas you've got to supply third-party invoices. So if a contractor got stuff in stock, say if he buys in bulk uh, a whole bunch of stuff, he buys 10, but the government only wants one. So he gets a much better deal. Now the government wants to get in on that deal. Instead of paying the retail price and the wholesale price, like the way the economy is all based on, because the government is the end user, they don't get the wholesale price. They want a copy of those invoices, which are, it's a private uh, document between the contractor and the wholesaler. And it's none of the government's business or anybody else's business or what he pays for it. The government should be just looking at, well, what is the average retail price for that product to see that he's charging uh, a fair market value. But this 10 and 10 on the uh, the purchasing price by the contractor is not right for them to ask for the their invoices from third-party country, uh, company because they don't want the government knowing, say the wholesaler, don't want the government knowing what they are charging for it because it's different rates to different contractors. I'm a little bit confused. Why shouldn't we know about how much a contractor pays for whatever it is, a part or a piece, so that we can incorporate that into a fair way to pay for the contractor? Or is that what you're suggesting? I don't know. I'm a little confused here. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that I make a deal with a contractor, which is a, a, a wholesaler. Uh, I could be high on my payments and that, and they're charging me extra. Whereas I'm a, another fellow who's a good, uh, good uh, payer. He's buying a lot more materials, so we're giving him a better rate at the wholesale price than this other fellow down the road. And also, these wholesalers a lot of times are selling to the government, and they don't want the government knowing what they're paying the contractor. It's, it's private business, and uh, when they're asking for this stuff, like some of the contractors won't deal with you. If they know that you're passing on their prices to you, to the government, they won't sell to you because they don't want the government known because the government is paying the retail price from these people, not the wholesale price. Um, so it gets it, it, it might get a bit complicated. I don't know how to explain it any better. Uh, but if, the government, yeah, go okay, ahead. Okay, so if. And I don't know how big a concern this is, and I'm trying to follow along. So if a contractor is able to buy at wholesale price as opposed to the government looking for an average retail and assessing that inside the contract, so basically the contractor is profiting off their wholesale price, but why should we, why should we allow for additional profit from a contractor on their wholesale purchase power versus pay them what they paid for whatever it is they bought? What's the difference in you going in the Canadian Tire and buying something and then asking, well, I want to know what you paid for it. I'm on a copy of your invoice to make sure you're not marking me up too much. No, but I'm an individual buying from a retailer. I understand that there's a, a top up there. You're talking about taxpayer dollars, not my hard-earned money. That's right. Yeah, but it's, anyway, it's, I suppose. It's, it's anyway, Mike, go ahead. This is the way our economy runs. You're a contractor. You go out and you buy your parts. You're entitled to a markup. What that markup is is entirely separate from, say, the next fellow that, that buys it. he got different uh, expenses and that stuff that goes into it. So I'm a contractor, and I goes out and buys a big deal. I buys this cheap down the road, figuring that I can charge the retail price for it. 
But according to the government, no, the government wants those savings on my good dealings, which is not right. The government should be required to pay the, the retail price and not demand from the contractor that they show their invoices because a lot of stuff is in stock. They buy in bulk. Well, there's no, in other words, there's no good for any contractor to go to try to get a good deal or anything else. And uh, another thing, like they got the ties into this, is, is warranty. They want that you got to get three price contractor got to get three prices, and he's got to buy the lowest price. Okay. But you want a warranty onto it. Now, if I'm going to buy in a ten dollar cheap Chinese bearing, he wants me to guarantee it. Whereas a decent bearing is a hundred dollars. Uh, why would I be responsible for the failure of a ten dollar bearing? So, this stuff is uh, is is not right uh, with the, the way that it's written. And uh, like I said, it's it's the, one of the biggest thing is this ten and ten. The thing is, is that different prices, different contractor got different prices for the uh, for the stuff. It's just as well for me to go down to the to the wholesaler who also sells retail and say, "No, boy, charge me the retail price. I make more money ten and ten uh, on top of it." So, so uh, you know, it it gets into a, a mess of conniving and that and everything else and uh, all the difference like well if I'm going to pay the prices I got to give the government the invoice the more that they charge me the better because I'm making more percentage on the end of it do you understand that? I, I understand that but I don't know why we want government paying more unnecessarily so I just don't understand defending that about. They, are, they are going to pay more Okay, I guess we're in the same church, maybe in a different pew. But uh, anyway, Mike, anything else you want to offer before we uh, take a break? Well, basically, uh, from what I can gather is that the Department of Transportation are the only ones putting in these stipulations from other departments and that stuff, whatever. And also, I talked to this thing to the Auditor General, and the Auditor General said they would never look for third-party invoices in any of their... uh, inquiries or anything else or investigations they would never ask for it so there's no accountants or anybody else that would demand copies of third party uh, third party invoice which is a confidential uh, deal between uh, two other people and the government is not entitled to it okay even though there's no bulk buying power quite like what government has Uh, appreciate the time Mike thanks for the call and the info yeah, but a lot of people, what you don't realize is that a lot of people on government got special prices for government. Some of them might be a little bit lower, but a lot of them are one hell of a lot higher. We bought a part a while ago that was uh, cost us $600. Now, they said we charged the government $900 for that part. And we got it for $600 wholesale. So there's a lot of people out there that was with the government. Their prices are a lot higher because of government. they got to wait so long for the money and so much rigmarole and all the rest of it that they charge us more. Welcome to the show, Mike. Again, I appreciate your time, sir. We're off to the break. I say i got a lot of people confused. Uh, possibly. Uh, I might even be part of that confused pile. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for this, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Okay. Thanks, all the best. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Philip, you're on the air. Hello, Hi, Hiya. All right. I- I'd like to let everyone know that there was an accident on Banger Major and Hussey Drive with the 
wires weren't on scene, so if anyone's coming that way or coming up at Tor Bay, you could just like stay away from it. Always a good heads up because there's alternate routes available. You don't want to get yourself tangled up unnecessarily. So if you're heading towards the Hussey Drive, Vanguard Drive area, a big okay. accident and the fire and emergency services are on the scene. So take another route. Hopefully everyone's okay. Oh, yeah. I just lived uh, on Carolyn Drive and Hussey Drive. I just come from that way and, and seen it and let everyone know, like, just stay away from it and like you said take another route if you got to always a good idea appreciate the heads up philip thank you you're welcome take care bye-bye. all right bye-bye uh so stay away from that area for now line number two maureen you're on the air good morning patty good morning i just wanted to uh i'm a patient of the collaborative clinics i've been a patient since the first one opened and I was listening to Linda Swain's show yesterday when she had the regional director on, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Like, she must have been talking about what these clinics are going to look like in five or ten years because it's nothing like what it looks like now. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll give a couple of examples. She said, you know, uh, named all the different uh, specialties they had on site, like physiotherapy and social workers and all that. I needed physiotherapy, and I had to make an appointment to get a referral to physiotherapy. No one mentioned we have a physiotherapist on site. I've been going to a, a private clinic outside of Eastern Health, no one mentioned we have physiotherapy, so I was referred out. That's one example. Um, when, whenever I call to make an appointment, you just get a machine. Then you go to work the next day. When I get home, there's a, another message on the machine to call the clinic, and every time I call, I get a machine, and then I get a message saying to call them. So it takes weeks to get an appointment set up. Um, one time, they started out in Churchill Square, and I had an appointment there one day and went there. I don't have a car, but I got there. And they had moved to Monty Pond Road and like didn't inform the patients that they're not in Churchill Square anymore. And then I had another appointment on Monty Pond Road. It was a freezing, cold, windy winter day. Again, no car to sit in. I went to the Monty Pond Road and it, they had turned it into a COVID clinic without informing the patients who had appointments. It's crazy. Every time I go there, I see a different person who has none of my history. So, I, like the way she was speaking yesterday, I had to turn off the radio. I said, she's, she's saying what she's being told to say. Who was? The, the person on Linda Swain's show. Oh, her guest. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, communication is always going to be the key, isn't it? I mean, something as simple as where the clinic is located and if they've moved, my goodness, you think that would be the very first thing they'd communicate with their patients. And secondly, for the referrals outside the clinic, you would imagine if you go to one of these collaborative care clinics, you'll be made aware of what services are actually available, what healthcare professionals work there. A referral outside might be the most timely referral they can get just based on how busy and how many appointments that the physiotherapist has on the book 
books inside that clinic. Sometimes it might be the best idea. If I need treatment and I can get it on Thursday this week versus get it on Tuesday next week, maybe sometimes that's the rationale behind where they place their referrals. But I guess there's still some kinks to work out, and obviously so, because not everyone is getting the type of treatment they thought they would get based on what the department said it was going to look like. I would be totally, totally surprised if there's actually a physiotherapist there. That was my only reason for the appointment, was that I needed a physiotherapist. And she wrote me a referral to go to a clinic and get my physio. And I'm going to Wedgwood Physio. Okay. There was no mention, oh, well, we have a physiotherapist here. And and she spoke about huddling in the morning. Like, nobody discussed me with each other, I'm telling you. I'm going there two years. And no one is discussing me with each other. I'm sorry, say that part again. Nobody is doing what? She said that, like, if you go in and you see a doctor, everybody huddles in the morning to discuss your case. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Well, I, like... You know, I was really sick, and I kept telling them my history. And every time I went, I had to repeat it over and over to a different person because there was no chart on me. No one was discussing me with each other, the staff. I was going in to see someone who'd never seen me before every single time and explaining everything each time I went there. And that's over a two-year period. This has happened every single time. That is the distinct problem with the lack of continuity of care. I understand that entirely. Because when you develop a relationship with your doctor, your doctor might not remember every specific thing, but has the opportunity to look in the file to refresh their memory, what, be, what might be alien Maureen and some for uh, pr- prescription history of the past, whatever it is. But having to walk through it step by step every single time is... It just makes for longer appointments and less patients to be seen through the course of the day, given that exercise of refreshing the next healthcare professional's uh, memory about who you are, what your problem is. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Maureen? I just want to say that I think that it's a good concept, and I really pray that it works and they get the kinks out. Yep. But I, I'm too familiar with Eastern Health. Like, this is... I don't have a lot of hope, I'll put it that way. I'm too familiar with Eastern Health to to have any type of confidence that these three clinics are going to be up and running very well. You know, they have one established. It shouldn't take too much to put the others in place. They have a model already. And uh, I bet it'll take months and months and months, and they'll have bugs in all of them, and that's the way Eastern Health operates. <laughs> Let's hope that's not the case, but you may indeed be right on the money, Maureen. I hope not, Patty, hope really, not. because, you know, we we need improvements. So hope it happens. Appreciate the time this morning, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take bye. good care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, let's talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. How you doing today, sir? Doing very well. How you doing? Uh, Calling about the uh, price of fuel and how it's uh, driving everything else up, like uh, food and so the uh, price of fuel went up last week. It's been it's up and down like a yo-yo. And from what I can gather, they're basing it on 
um, the war in Russia, and uh, you know we haven't purchased any fuel from Russia since 2019. So I don't understand that logic of it, and um, the uh, makes it hard on someone who is uh, on a bit of uh, old age pension, Canada pension, disability. You know, uh, some board fixed income to uh, pay for. Um, heating fuel for their for their home uh, when they got other things to buy uh, and, and pay their uh, bills besides. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a tough uh, bind to be in, Patty, and no um, no help from the government, zero. And zero help, zero help for, for all those people that are on uh, low-income, fixed-income. So what do you suggest should be done? Because, you know, even if you hear from, say, Tony Wakeham, uh, the shadow minister of finance, is that the big issues when the government brought forward their five-point plan, two of which had nothing to do with folks who were struggling, you know, transitioning from oil to electricity in your home or buying electric vehicles, there was a couple of things there for certain uh, segments of society. But what do you think could or should be done? Well, if you're going to transition from, uh, from you know, oil heat to electric heat or or heat pump, well, then you obviously got to have that money uh, up front. And, you know, the most of those uh, programs are you pay and then you, you get a rebate afterwards. And so it's hard to pay for those things when uh, you don't have the money up front to begin with. So, yeah, rebates uh, are, you know, rebates are helpful for those who can afford it, similar to things like, you know, the physical activity rebate. For folks who can't afford to put their children in some organized physical active activity, sports or otherwise, then the rebate doesn't come to play because they can't afford it up front, period. Same thing would be associated with maybe even some home heating rebate, even though I think that's a good start. But regardless of how we slice this up, if government does away with the revenue stream, whether it be taking off the provincial uh, tax on gasoline, for instance, if they lose that bit of revenue, they're going to get it somewhere else because we uh-huh. either are going to jack up some fee or a tax or they're just going to have to borrow more money, which comes with its own complicating factor. So I get why we say, you know, more more assistance, and I wouldn't mind a break at the pump. I mean, make no mistake about it, but I don't know exactly what they can do. Yeah, the, the, you know, like it, it just seems like this this uh, government that's seen now, and you know, I'll be uh, guilty to one of the parties that voted them in. Um, it just seems like they're the tax government, the tax, tax, tax. So they're not about they're not about the um, you know the the planning and 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 getting projects up off the ground and 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 getting jobs so that they can have a tax revenue coming in from people that are actually working at these big jobs to uh, reduce down what they got to tax people out with. And seems like they're the tax government. Everything is a tax, and then a new tax for that tax. And it's, um, it, it's a vote that I won't be making the next time around. Uh, I don't know who I'm going to vote for, but uh, I'm not voting Liberal the next time around. Uh, I, all I see is tax. Every time you turn around, is a new tax. The, you know, during these really extraordinarily difficult times, governments find themselves in a really rough spot, man. I don't know who's got a whole lot of solutions that are being proposed, to be honest with you. So I guess we'll all see where we stand, whether or not, you know, the big question that people will ask themselves, is my life better now than it was when I voted for whatever government in whatever province and or federally? I guess that's how people evaluate where they're going to place their next vote. Uh, Anything else you want to say, Barry? Everyone can say what they want about Danny Williams, but when he was in, people had money in their pocket. 
And uh, so I'll leave it at that, Patty. Okay. I think, you know, the immediate uh, reaction I'll get in some corners is it's also the government and the, the fellow who brought us Muscat Falls. So money in my pocket is very quickly going to be taken out of my pocket. Very, very quick in 30 seconds. I'll tell you what our problem with Muscat Falls was. Okay. Same thing, same problem we had with other big projects like Voices Bay, SNC Levelin. Really? See, Levin. I won't say that. I can say that 50 times over. They know how to. I, I've been on jobs where where the project fell behind when when bags were were over stacks of 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 equipment up in a parking lot that were put on the books as working. People gone home. Yeah, you know, we had some really bizarre contracts in place. You know, we were paying for work hours versus. Uh, the amount of concrete report, for instance, you know, they should never backwards. ever be the engineering contractor ever again in this province. But you know what's kind of curious about uh, SNC Lavalin as it pertains to Muskrat Falls, is they actually brought forward a report looking at the pitfalls of the current structure of the plans and the contracts in place up there that we don't even know if anyone reviewed it or when they did and what they did with it. So they actually pointed out some pretty glaring issues that had they been addressed would have saved us some money and probably brought us closer to schedule so yeah they've got a, a certainly an international terrible reputation for some really solid reasons including their operations with the construction of the mcgill hospital in montreal but anyway barry appreciate you making time for the show they had a, they had a lot of play in the in the run behinds in voices bay and overcast runs up there as well too so oh i mean they've they've committed some absolutely ridiculous corporate acts no doubt about it you take care of yourself. You have a good day. Same to you, Barry. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I remember that's one of the things that came out of the LeBlanc inquiry, is that there was a report that was actually written by SNC Lavalin talking about why there are some absolute problems on site, contractual and otherwise. We don't even know what became of that. You know, maybe that could have saved us some money. Hard to say now, but we've learned an awful lot after the fact here. And even some of these issues with the adjustment to some of the legislation regarding the 2007 ban on wind as an alternative form of energy. How that factors into Muskrat and the pending bill for my hydro, I don't think it, even the government understands because... It's one thing if they set up some wind regime for whether it be to transmit power elsewhere, which is extremely complicated and possibly very expensive, and or it's used for water electrolysis and the production of hydrogen, which seems to be exactly where we are headed. But if a big operation that's a big consumer of power sets up a wind installation and has less reliance on the grid, whether it be power from Muskrat or otherwise, if they pay, if we have fewer consumers, we end up paying more for kilo, per kilowatt hour. So how that gets factored in, and whether it be for how government evaluates one application or another for wind, for self-generation, and or for distribution, I guess we'll find out. But if that complicates the muskrat power bills or hydro bills even further, I don't think that brings us very far or much further ahead. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Uh, yes. Good morning, Patty. Uh, how are you? We're doing okay. How are you doing? Oh, not bad, buddy. Thanks a lot. Um, my blood was kind of boiling there uh, a few days ago uh, when Mr. Uh, Dean was denied uh, that new drug that they came up with in, in the United States. Um, and the infectious disease specialist came on and he said, well, if you've had your, your two shots plus one booster, that it's not going to work. There's no way, Patty that they could have produced a number of random 
double random uh, clinical trials to assess that fact. Okay, and overnight there was something done about it. Overnight, all the policy changes were in effect because they weren't doing that in the rest of Canada. Well, there's different policies in different provinces, which is something I don't quite understand, because if we were leaning on national guidelines, you would imagine that that would apply to the nation, not just one province or another. In Ontario, if you're over the age of 70, regardless of your vaccination status, if your doctor or nurse practitioner thinks that you're a candidate for Paxlovid, you get it. So why is it different here? I have no idea. And plus, I don't even get what's the the change in heart here. Is it because of the public backlash? Is it because uh, Jen Dion fought the good fight in public on behalf of her father? Now they say they're going to evaluate in case-by-case basis. That sounds like an awful lot of additional workload versus a possible change in policy, period. I mean, think about it. There's 31 courses of the treatment that have been delivered to the province, 3,100. There's only been 216 of the cycles have been used, and none of those people who took it ended up in hospital. So obviously there's a big upside to it. Well, there's no question. I mean, if that was your grandfather, and and for example, or my grandfather, and they had been over in the war, and 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 you know, pretty well, you know, almost sacrificed their lives, uh, you know, and and you got this uh, this guy. I mean, uh, comes on TV and, and he says, "Well, I'm an infectious disease specialist. There's no way he's going to get it." You know, I mean, what kind of society are we living in, right? I mean, you know, there's got to be a bit of compassion in medicine, right? You know, and uh, anyway, I just, uh, I hope the policy changes, and not, you know, and I think uh, Dr. Fury, uh, who's also a doctor, of course, I, I hope he can, uh, you know, uh, get the policy changed uh, because he, he, he has the power, obviously, right? So, you know, uh, good luck to him on that. I just think to have a better understanding as to why different provinces take, take different tactics. For instance, if one infectious disease specialist says that it can't possibly work in a patient who has had their primary series plus a booster, but yet in other provinces they don't even consider vaccination status, which is it? Because it can't be both, right? Well, there's something funny going on, okay? It, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, and everything should be uniform across the country, right? You know, especially in one nation, right? You know, I mean, since you came, I mean, we got to pay for the uh, the starter kits, sir. Fifty nine dollars for the uh, uh, the test to the, the, the see we got COVID or that. Whereas uh, we're only one, we're only one of the three provinces that got to do that. I mean, the rest of them, are, the government takes care of the cost. Yeah, there's ourselves, PEI in New Brunswick, are still having people go to a retailer to buy them. You know, I guess on both fronts is the government is trying to ensure that the way that they use the rapid test kits to, to distribute them to schools, healthcare workers, congregate living facilities like long-term care facilities, to make sure that we have them when we need them for those three areas. I suppose they're considering the same thing when it comes to access to Paxlovid. But, mm-hmm. you know, a one-off change, you have to wonder exactly why that was. And if it was simply a change of heart or reacting to an advocate like Jen, the daughter, f- fighting on behalf of her dad, it's just a little bit difficult under- to understand exactly what's going on with that particular drug. But for the 216 people that received it, it worked as it was intended. So that's the good side. Now we'll see if there's any policy adjustment coming in the near future. Uh, Sean, I appreciate making time for the show. 
Okay, and Patty, I appreciate talking with you. Thank you for making time for me. And I certainly hope and pray that uh, Mr. Dean uh, remains uh, in good health. Yeah, and and just not to be nitpicky, his name is Dion, Rod Dion. Uh, and oh yeah, you are. Right. Yes, sir. I, I apologize. Which is no big deal. It's neither here nor there. I just didn't. I just wanted to put that out there on his and his family's behalf. Appreciate the call. Take good care. You you take good care, Patty. Bye-bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, I mean those are a couple of a little bit difficult to understand exactly why there's so many differences. Now, throughout the course of the pandemic, there have been different. Uh, issues with the timeliness of restrictions and when they were put in place and when they were eased and some of the issues regarding the vaccine rollout and all those things, uh, I get it. But when the drug, this one in particular, our restrictions are much, much different than they are in, you know, people are pointing to Ontario specifically because if it's a matter of it works or it doesn't, now Pfizer will tell you that they only tested it amongst unvaccinated, but Ontario has turned a blind eye to that particular fact. And someone came after me, guns blazing, after I said this during the opener this morning. If if you're unvaccinated, so be it. You made your own choice. That's it. But it is sort of hard to understand how you wouldn't possibly take the vaccination coming from Pfizer, but are happily looking to take their antiviral oral treatment, which is indeed Paxlovid. Okay, last check in on the Twitter box where VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there, offer your thoughts on the show, or suggest some potential topics for us to peruse on the program. Same thing when you send us an email. It's openline at VOCM.com. Let's play our way out of here this morning. David, what do you say? Okay, uh, so I'm sorry. I was someone whispered in my ear. That's okay. So let's see. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.